Let's turn to the book of Joshua. We've got the Joshua chapter 7 here in our series. So the book of Joshua and chapter 7. Now, last week, we left the children of Israel on the spiritual heights. They'd been around the walls of Jericho. The walls had crashed. So we left them on the spiritual heights. But this week, as we move into chapter 7 and chapter 8, they plunge. And they plunge quickly into the depths of failure. And they plunge into the depths of humiliation as well. After defeating Jericho, it's time to conquer the rest of the promised land. What happens to the children of Israel is they go from sublime victory and they plunge down into shameful defeat. I wonder, has that ever happened to you in your spiritual life? Have you ever gone from the heights of spiritual blessing, the heights of spiritual victory, and very quickly you plunge down into shame and failure and doubts? Has that ever happened to you? It's happened to me, sadly, far too many times. And what's the cause? Why why does that happen sometimes in our spiritual lives? Everything seems to be going well. We experience the blessing of God. We're walking well, and then all of a sudden, we crash down. Why does that happen? Well, the answer is always the same, and the answer is sin. Because sadly, after spiritual blessing, we're prone to something. We are prone to temptation. That's why the Apostle Paul warns us in his writings He says, if anybody thinks they stand, if anybody thinks everything's going well in their life, take heed. Be warned. If anyone thinks they stand, take heed, unless you fall, unless you trip up, unless you come down spectacularly. And so as we come into chapter 7 and chapter 8, we need to heed the Apostle Paul's warning as we come to these chapters. We need to take heed. We actually need to listen up well as we read this passage together. And then we need to listen as we unpack this message because it's something that's real and it's relevant and it's practical for every single one of us. So let's listen and let's learn from God's Word. Let's read Joshua chapter 7. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not make all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are of you. So about three thousand men went up from there, from the people, And they fled before the men of Ai, and the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them back to the gate as far as Jeroboam and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land shall hear of it and will surround us and cut off your name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? The Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. 
They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them, and they have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs to their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes, and the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans, and the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households, and the household that the Lord shall take shall come near man by man, and he who is taken from the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel." So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clans of the Zerahites were taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerahites man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household man by man, and Achan, the son of Camre, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, Give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. And tell me now what you've done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing, weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent. And behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they led them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold, and his sons and his daughter and his oxen and his donkeys and his sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned him with fire and stoned him with stones. And they raised over them a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. There's one big lesson in this chapter. It's a long chapter, but one big lesson that screams out from the pages. And here's the lesson. It's a very simple lesson. Sin always has consequences. We can see this in the chapter. It had consequences for a man called Achan who stole things that weren't his. But it also had consequences for other people. His sin affected lots of other people. It had consequences for the rest of the nation, for the rest of the children of Israel. And the lesson of chapter 7 is actually a lesson for each one of us as well. Sin, sin in our lives will have consequences. Sin will have consequences for you, and sin will have consequences for me. It'll also have consequences for our church family as well, because sin always has consequences. Now, Ai was a much smaller town than Jericho, and so when the children of Israel looked out at Jericho, it was easy pickings compared to the great victory they just had. 
Now, what we find here in chapter 7 is actually not easy pickings. It's the scene of the only defeat that the children of Israel encountered in the whole of the book of Joshua. And it's the only place in the book of Joshua that we discover the loss of life for the children of Israel as well. So why did this happen? Now, some people read chapter 7 and they think it happened because there was overconfidence. They got overconfident after the success of Jericho. Jericho was easy. The Lord brought the walls down. And so they were overconfident. Some think it was down to a lack of prayer. There's no prayer mentioned before they set out. Some people think they were dependent on human wisdom. They tried to work out in their own mind rather than looking to the Lord how they should defeat this nation or this group of people. But that's not the reason. That's not the reason the Bible actually gives for their failure and defeat. God gives a very clear answer to the question, why did it happen in verses 11 and 12? Let me read it again to you. Here's what God says. Israel has sinned. That's the answer. Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant, that special relationship that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies because they have sinned. Now, back before they came to Jericho, God had given the people a warning. He said, you're going to go into Jericho. The victory's yours. You're going to claim the land. But when you go in, you're not to take any of the plunder. You're not to take stuff and to bring it back and to keep it for yourself. There are some things that are going to be kept. They're going to be put into the treasury of the Lord. They're going to be devoted to God. They're going to be set apart as worship to God. He gets the first fruit of the spoils of victory as they claim the promised land. But everything else is to be destroyed. Everything else is to be put away. Don't take it for yourself. And not only did God warn them to do that, he gave them the consequences if they disobeyed his warning. He said, if you take things when you go into Jericho, you will bring trouble on the whole nation. And what we see here in chapter 7 is the outworkings of that because somebody has disobeyed God's warning and we see trouble not coming just for one person, but as God had warned for the whole nation as well because sin always has consequences. One man coveted, one man was greedy, he took stuff, he hid it in his own tent, and he brought trouble. He brings trouble upon himself, but he actually brings trouble across, across the whole nation. Their first defeat, the death of around about 36 people, and humiliation. Humiliation, not only to the name of the children of Israel, but actually humiliation to the, the name of the Lord who they follow and whose name they go out and fight in. And so his sin actually has consequences for the glory and the name of God himself. And so what Joshua does when this happens, when the people are defeated, is he and the other leaders, they spend the whole day in prayer and mourning on their faces, crying out to God. And they do it before the Ark of the Covenant. And we thought about the Ark of the Covenant, that's the very presence of God. And so they fall in front of the presence of God and they cry out. And their question is, why have you let this happen? Why have you let this happen? They start to question God. Let me read verse 7 again. And Joshua said, alas, O Lord God, why have you, the blame's going to God here, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we have been content to dwell beyond the Jordan? Why didn't we just stay the other side of the river? You've brought us over to bring us in defeat. Do you know what it sounds like? It sounds like the children of Israel 40 years before when they came out through the Red Sea. Remember God delivered them spectacular way. And then they encounter some trouble in what they say to God. Why did you bring us out? We'd have been better if we'd stayed back as slaves in Egypt. 
But the fault doesn't lie with God. The fault lies with one man who's brought the consequences upon the whole nation. Now, if only one man is guilty, why does the whole nation suffer? It just doesn't seem fair. Well, as we work our way through the whole of the Old Testament and we see God's relationship with the children of Israel, God looks upon the people as one people. There is a unity. So when one sins, it's as if all sins. When blessing comes, it comes to all the people. That's how God views. There's a unity there, one person. And actually, this follows through into the New Testament because as you look at the church, how does God view the church? As one body. There is unity there. So as one part of the body suffers, all the body suffers. As one part of the body rejoices, all the body rejoices. And so when sin comes into God's people, one nation, one people, it actually affects everyone. And it needs to be dealt with. It needs to be dealt with, and the nation cannot be absolved of the guilt of Achan's sin until that individual is punished. There's no need to call in Sherlock Holmes to work out who did it. You don't need to call for Miss Marple. The culprit is quickly found. <coughs> See, Achan had sinned, and he had tried to cover it up. He had hid his stuff in his tent. He thought nobody else knew. But what he was soon to learn was somebody always knows. You see, you can hide your sin from everybody else. You can hide your sin from the leaders. You can hide your sin from Joshua. Joshua is oblivious to what has happened. But you cannot hide your sin from God. And so what God commands is that they draw lots and they quickly identify the tribe that he's from. He's from the tribe of Judah. They identify the clan. Then they bring it down to the family. And then they're able to pinpoint with complete accuracy who is the person who has caused this trouble on the nation of Israel. Now, Achan knew he had done wrong. How do we know he had done wrong? It wasn't just a mistake. He hadn't heard God's warning. The fact that he hid the plunder that he took. He knew exactly what he had done. He knew exactly the command that he had broken. He thought he could get away with it. But here's the interesting thing. As they brought the whole nation out to find out the culprit, he was the one person there who knew he was to blame. When did he step forward and put up his hand and say, it was me. Not once. He had an opportunity to stand forward. And so when it's brought down to one tribe out of 12, the tribe of Judah, does he step forward then? No. When it's brought down to his clan, does he step forward? No. When it's brought down to his family, does he step forward? No. What's he thinking in his head there? Maybe I have still a chance I can get away with this. Maybe one of my brothers will be blamed instead of me. And what insight does that give us into the heart of Achan? Yes, he makes a confession of his sin once the finger of blame points to him, but he had plenty of opportunities to stand forward and to show remorse, to show repentance. And yet the whole way through, he's thinking, I can get away with this. I can get away with this. He still thinks it's hidden. He still thinks there's some way that the finger of blame won't fall upon him. No remorse. No guilt, real guilt for his sin. I wonder what would have happened if the finger of blame had pointed to one of his brothers. Would he have stepped forward then and said, no, 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 he's innocent, it's me. Or would he have still continued to try and get away with it? You see, Achan, like Adam and Eve, was discovered that day that you can't hide your sin from everyone. 
Yes, you can hide your sin from most people, but you cannot hide your sin from God. Now, before we sit here today in judgment of Achan, and before we think in our mind, what a ridiculous thing to do to think you could hide your sin from God, here's the reality. Most of us here today do exactly the same thing. Most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, have hidden sins and with secret sins. Yes, we all sin, and we should confess our sin when we do wrong, but the reality is the life that we display out here isn't the whole life. Many people have hidden sins and secret sins, and what's the logic that runs through our mind? It's exactly the same as Achan. Nobody knows. Nobody knows what I'm thinking. Nobody knows what I'm looking at. Nobody knows how I'm behaving. Nobody sees. And we think the same logic. We'll get away with it. We'll get away with it because nobody knows and nobody sees and nobody will find out. It won't do any harm. There won't be any consequences whatsoever. And so we look at things, perhaps on the internet, and we have a hidden search history that's cleared because we want to hide it. We don't want people to know we're doing this. And we think we can get away with it. Pornography is one of the biggest problems in society. It's actually, sadly, one of the biggest issues in the church at the moment. Hidden sins, so easy access, you can cover it up. Nobody knows. And yet, what is the message of Joshua 7? Sin always has consequences. And you're right. Maybe nobody else knows about it in this room. But think of the damage it's doing to your mind, your soul, your relationships with other people. And God knows. And there will be a spiritual accountability for your actions and the consequences of your sin. Sometimes people take that the step forward and they have inappropriate relationships and there's affairs and actually it's all in secret and it's a bit of fun and nobody needs to find out and, and it's all be hidden and it'll be okay. But sin has consequences for your mind, for your soul. And when people do find out, the brokenness that flows from that. It's actually reading in the news this week, one of the biggest issues in Northern Ireland at the moment is online gambling and the havoc it is causing in families. Uh, it used to be, you know, gambling, you had to go to a, a, a shop or some bookie shop or something like that there, but now it's all be done here through the phone, this sort of addiction, this covetousness, wanting more money. Northern Ireland has the highest proportion of troubled gamblers, that's the phrase they use, people whose lives have just been gripped by this addiction, whose lives and families are in a mess because they're caught up. And, what is it for a lot of people? It's a hidden sin. Nobody else is seeing, nobody else knows, but sin always has consequences. Perhaps it's some kind of fraud. You know, you're, you're putting in expenses forms, or you're doing some financial thing in work, and you can just shift things about, and nobody will know, and nobody will find out, and maybe you'll financially gain from it, but sin always has consequences. And maybe nobody ever will find out about what you've done, but what's that doing to your mind? What's that doing to your heart? What's that doing to your soul? And if it is found out, what are the implications? 
because sin always has consequences. Sin can never be hidden. Sin always hurts. Sin always damages. It will damage you, and often it will damage those around you as well. Why did Achan do it? He wasn't a poor man. We see that at the end when it lists his possessions. He had oxen, he had donkeys, and he had sheep. He was a wealthy farmer as such, and so he didn't need anything else. But he tells us why he did it. He coveted. He was jealous for more possessions. He just wanted more, no matter what the cost would be. And God had given him a warning. God had said, this is what's going to happen, and he ignored it. It'll be okay. And so he continued on in his hidden sin. And so the chapter, chapter 7, ends with his punishment. He's stoned to death. He's destroyed because of his sin. And as we read that as 21st century people, we look, think about that and we think, that's a bit severe, okay? The punishment, he stole a few things. Is that not so severe? But let's think about it. What did his sin cause? What were the consequences of his sin? Will it cause defeat for the children of Israel in battle? It led to the death of 36 soldiers, and it led to the humiliation of God's people as well. It dishonored the name and the glory of God. It also says in chapter 7 that his family members were taken out and killed as well. And that seems totally unfair. He did something wrong. Why are they punished? Well, there's actually a law, God's law, as we find in the book of Deuteronomy, and it says that you're prohibited from punishing anybody because of the sin of their relatives. So if your family member does something wrong, you shouldn't be held guilty for that, and you should be declared innocent. The fact that they took them out shows that this law didn't apply. And so these family members must have been guilty alongside Achan. Where did he hide his treasure? He hid it in his tent. It would be impossible for the rest of the family not to know what was there and what was hidden. And they didn't speak up, in fact, they were complicit with him in hiding the, the, the plunder. And so, there's no injustice in the punishment they received. But in our minds, we're still thinking, but yeah, the punishment's far too serious. But here's the problem. The problem is actually with our minds and the way that we think. You see, our main problem is we don't think sin is that big a deal. We don't really grasp the seriousness of sin. And you know what else we don't grasp? There's something else we need to grasp before we grasp the seriousness of sin. We need to grasp the holiness of God. Our God is a holy God. He is pure. He is perfect. He is glorious in every way. What is the complete opposite of God? Sin and purity. And so a holy God and sin are a complete contradiction. The two things do not go together like magnets that repel against each other. God cannot turn a blind eye to sin. Sin is serious in the sight of his holiness and his purity. That's why he always takes sin so seriously. That's why the punishment for sin is so severe, so that we grasp the seriousness of sin, that we grasp the holiness of God, and that's our problem. We don't grasp the holiness of God, do we? And we don't grasp the seriousness of sin. And so we, we play about with it. We flirt about with sin. We make excuses for it. We tolerate it in our own lives. We tolerate it in the church. And we don't grasp and we don't see it the way God sees it. And because God is a holy God, he needs to punish sin 
Sin is serious in his sight, and it always has consequences. It has consequences for the individual he's committed it. God will not bless the life of hidden, unconfessed sin. And so it damages our relationship with God when there's hidden sin there, sin that's not dealt with. But it also damages those relationships. Think of families that are broken. Every broken family, what's the cause? Sin. Often it's public sin out in the open, but often it started as hidden sin that's just festered out and caused brokenness and pain and heartache. Sin always has consequences. It has consequences upon families. Where else does it have consequences? Churches like ours. And so when sin comes in, into the body, the whole sin, the whole church suffers. And never underestimate the damage the sin of one person can have. The name and the reputation of churches have sadly been soured and ruined because of the sin of one or two. How often do you hear people say, non-believers, maybe in the workplace, our Christians are just a bunch of hypocrites? Are Christians hypocrites? Well, some are. Some are. Some claim something, but their lives say something else. And actually, because of their sin, everybody gets lumped in. And the witness and the testimony of the church and the glory of God is affected because of the consequences of sin. And sometimes the public falling, particularly if a pastor falls morally or sin, not only is that a consequence for him, his ministry, on his family, but the whole church suffers. And the whole name and reputation of the church in that area suffers because sin always has consequences. What do we learn from chapter 7? This one simple, powerful, challenging lesson. Sin always has consequences. And so as we examine our hearts and our lives today, are there areas of hidden sins? Sins that we're letting fester away, that we haven't dealt with, that we haven't confessed. They'll have a consequence for you. If you're not a believer, it will separate you from a holy God forever and ever. If you are a believer, it will spoil your relationship with God. And it can dis destroy a relationship with family members. It can destroy the name and the witness of this church. And so if you find those areas of your life, you need to stop what you're doing you need to confess your sin and you need to repent from your sin as well. Sin always has consequences. But let's praise God this morning. It's not the end of the story. And it's not the only point that we see. Because in verse 26 of Joshua 7, it tells us that after Achan's sin was judged, God turned from his anger. And we learn another really powerful lesson in this story. Sin is not the end of the story. And chapter 8 starts with real words of encouragement. Let me read verse 1 to you. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city and the land. Now that the sin has been brought out into the open, now that the sin has been judged and dealt with, God can lead his people 
back into victory. God can lead his people back into spiritual blessing. And chapter 8, we'll not read it here for the sake of time. I encourage you to read it just to keep up with the, all the details of the story. Chapter 8 outlines what happens next. And so the Israelites, they come out, they lay a trap. A few thousand men come out. The inhabitants of Ai come out. They think, we'll beat them again. They come out, and it's an ambush. And lots more soldiers come in. They capture the city, and they destroy it as well. God's people triumph again, and they experience the blessing that they had in chapter 6. Again, they destroy this city, just like Jericho. And we talked a little bit about this last week. A lot of people are troubled by this. Now, why is the city destroyed? How could a loving God do this? Well, they fail to appreciate, again, two things. The first thing comes back to something we thought about. It's the holiness of God. The destruction of AI is another demonstration of the holiness of God. And the second thing is our first point this morning. Sin always has consequences. You see, the inhabitants of AI had committed horrendous sins over many years horrendous sins, including the sacrifice of children. This was a completely immoral group of people. And they'd been given hundreds of years to repent. They'd been given years to turn to the living God. And so when we think about this city, these are not innocent bystanders who just happened to be in the way of the children of Israel and where they wanted to live. Actually, what we encounter here is the judgment of God. God is using his people to bring judgment upon a sinful nation that turned their backs upon the living God. But here's what chapter 8 also shows us. Sin is not the end of the story. God doesn't operate on a one-strike-and-you're-out policy. You get one chance, you've blown it, that's it. You see, once the sin is dealt with amongst the children of Israel, God is able to use them again. And God is able to bless them because that's the story of the gospel. I want you to look at the very last words of chapter 7. Let me read the, the last sentence. It says, Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. The Achor, Valley of Achor is where they took Achan out, and they stoned him to death, and then they put up a big mound, stones, as a memorial, so the people would see this mound of stones and remind them of the holiness of God and the seriousness of sin and the judgment that comes because sin always has consequences. The Valley of Achor, the word Achor is a play on the word of Achan. The word Achor in that language means trouble. This is the Valley of Trouble because that is the consequence of sin. It always brings you the trouble. And that was set up. Now, as we work our way through the Bible, we find the valley of Achor in another place in the Old Testament. We come into one of the minor prophets. We come to the book of Hosea. I wonder what you know about Hosea. Hosea was a prophet in God, but he was married to a lady called Gomar. And his wife was an unfaithful, adulterous wife. She caused him heartache because of her sinful lifestyle. She was unfaithful to him time and time and time again. And as you read the prophecy of Hosea, you notice that there's a similarity, there's a connection, so that Hosea's relationship with his unfaithful wife is actually a picture of the Lord's relationship with his bride, with his people, the children of Israel. Because God is always faithful, and yet his children are adulterous. They run after other gods. They run after disobedience all the time. 
And so God speaks to the people through Gomer. And God tells Hosea that he's going to bring his people somewhere. He says he's going to bring his people, this is in Hosea chapter 2, to the valley of Achor, the valley of trouble. Now, when we read that in Hosea 2, we make the connection with the story of Achor. Why does God want to bring his people to the valley of trouble? Why does he want to bring them into the valley of Acre? Well, there can be only one reason in our minds. Sin has consequences. God's people have been unfaithful and they deserve to be punished. They deserve the same punishment that Achan received there in that valley years and years and years before. But that's not actually what happens in Hosea 2. God says, I'm going to bring my people to the valley of trouble. And this is what he says. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. What are vineyards? Vineyards symbolize blessing and abundance for the people. My people are unfaithful. My people are sinful. And I'm going to bring them into the valley of trouble. But something different is going to happen. It's not going to be the same as what happened to Achor. There in the valley of Achor, the valley of trouble, I'm going to bless my people even though they don't deserve it. And there in the valley of trouble, instead of them being stoned to death with what they deserve, I'm going to open a door of hope. Now, who opens the door of hope for people who have been unfaithful to God? His name is Jesus Christ, the one who said, I am the door. Anyone who enters by me will be saved. And Jesus Christ is the only one who can turn the valley of trouble into a door of hope. Jesus Christ is the only one who can make sure that the sin and the consequences we deserve for our sin is not the end of the story. It should be the end of the story, but Jesus Christ is the one who makes it all different. Does sin bring judgment? Of course it does. That's the teaching from Genesis right through to Revelation, but it's not the whole story. Sin is not the end of the story. Jesus Christ can make the difference because Jesus Christ came to bring us hope. He stepped into this world, and where did he go? He went down into the valley for us. Jesus went into the valley and he took our sin. He took our punishment. He was put to death. He went down into the valley, dying in our place. And what happened on the cross? We have this great exchange. The valley of Acre is exchanged for the door of hope. And Jesus took our valley of Acre. He took our punishment. And in this place, he opens a door of hope. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And whoever follows him, whoever goes to that door, what do they receive? They receive forgiveness for their sins. They are made a new creation. All their sin has gone. It's removed as far as the east is from the west. He promises never to remember it anymore. It will never be held against us. Romans 8 says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he gives us a hope, a living hope for here on earth, but eternally as well, that we will live with him forever and ever and ever. Do we deserve it? No. But Jesus Christ turns the valley of trouble and he gives us hope, a hope that we don't deserve. Do you know what we deserve? I've said it already. The same punishment as Achan because of our hidden sins, our open sins, all our sins. 
Incredibly, Jesus Christ took that punishment instead of us. What a savior. What a savior he is. The one who can turn trouble into hope. But he has an enemy called the devil. And here's what the devil wants you to believe. The devil wants you to believe that sin is the end of the story. That when you fail, that when you stumble, that when you fall into the depths of spiritual disobedience, that's it. There is no way back. That's not the gospel. Jesus Christ can turn our valley of trouble into a door of hope. Sin is not the end of the story. Maybe you're here this morning, you have never, ever trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. You have not walked through that door of hope. Well, sin is serious, and sin has consequences, and you're heading for the judgment of God if you refuse his salvation. And so there are consequences for your sin. And so what you need to do is you need to come to one who gives hope for sinful people, who took your place on the cross and receive his forgiveness, receive his cleansing, receive all the hope and the blessings that flow from the one who came to conquer sin. And if you've never trusted Christ, come to Christ before it's too late. But for many of us here, we look upon our Christian lives. We are Christians. We've trusted Christ. But we see those hidden sins, those secret sins, those feelings, the shame that that brings upon our lives. And the devil speaks to us and he says, that's it. You've blown it. You're no use to God. You're a failure. No. The message of the Bible is that sin is not the end of the story. And I love the words of 1 John 1 and 9. These are words not written to unbelievers. These are written to believers, believers in a local church. And it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us from what? Some of our sins, acceptable sins? No, from all unrighteousness. The gospel of Christ is big enough to deal with all our feelings and all our sins. And so as you sit here, maybe as a believer, and you realize your feelings and your sins and the consequences, the mess you've made in your own mind, your soul, maybe the mess you've made in your family, sin is not the end of the story. Jesus is bigger, he's greater, and he's more glorious than your sin. And so come to him this morning. Come to him and move away from the valley of trouble, the valley of acre, and walk through the door of hope and discover the joy and the blessing that's found in coming back to Jesus Christ. Let's pray as we think about it.